My mother was a woman of tremendous integrity. My mother was curious, sensitive, compassionate, honest, always there for us, unflappable, loyal, complicated. She is devoted, resilient, dazzling, giving, vivacious, extraordinary. All my friends were always shocked growing up when I was in New York that your mom's not a New Yorker. She just came across as that opinionated person who knew what she knew and had it wasn't within the hesitate to tell you about it. Ask mama, Hello and welcome to our mothers ourselves. I'm Katie Hafner and I'm your host. This is pretty obvious, but I think I'll point it out to you anyway. Everybody has a mother. So when it comes to finding great mothers to feature, I have to be pretty selective. And this one was a slam dunk. Someone sent me an obituary for a woman named Elizabeth McCarthy Ehrenfeld, who went by the name Betta. The obituary ran in the Portland Press-Herald in Maine. She died on January 20th, 2019, and she was 92 years old. Here's a little bit from the obituary. Although she never saw a woman as president, Betta Ehrenfeld lived to witness the election of Maine's first female governor. Perhaps with the help of a card Betta sent in October. On the cover was a photo of her in pearls, her head on a pillow. She held a sign that no one could ignore. It demanded simply, vote. Betta was a founding subscriber to Ms. Magazine, a card-carrying atheist, a role model to her three daughters and those who admired her intellect and wit. She was in her element conversing about world affairs, a gracious Southern lady with an opinion or two or three. She collected bobbleheads and throw-up bags and had a pilot's license. She loved to drive cross-country in Bluebird, her convertible, with her dog, Sister, as co-pilot. Then the obituary goes on. And I was smitten. So I sat down with one of Betta's daughters, Martha Ehrenfeld, who lives in San Francisco, and we talked about her mom. Martha Ehrenfeld, thank you so much for joining me to talk to me about your mom. She sounds absolutely amazing. Thanks. I I feel really lucky to have my mom. To start off, let me just tell you, I am staring at this amazing photograph of her, of Betta, uh, lying in bed, looking pretty chipper, with a huge sign that's as big as she is, that says vote. So tell me about that. Yeah, so that was in the fall of 2018, and at that point, she was pretty much bedridden. She was... um uh, living in a community uh, outside Portland, Maine, and she had 24-hour care. And it was really important to her that all the different aides that were coming in uh, were going to vote, and she would try to educate them on all the issues that were happening in Maine at that time. And also she wanted to um, send out a card to all her friends and family to remind them to vote. And my sister helped her make that sign. We took a picture. We went online and made cards and sent them out to everyone we knew. And uh, we got a lot of great feedback. People said, I've never gotten a card before that reminded me to vote. Oh, I love that. And she did vote. I take it. She did vote absentee. Yes, that was um, fall 2018, November 2018. Mm-hmm. And, how- and, you know, she she really been a New Yorker most of her life. And when she, because of her medical situation, had to move closer 
to my older sister in Maine. She tried to look on the bright side and say, well, my vote goes for more in Maine than it would in New York. Oh, it's so true. Uh, Maine is one of those states that you kind of never know. Yeah, it's a very interesting state. They also, I think, if I remember correctly, they, their uh, electoral votes can get split. It's one of the few states where it doesn't go all or one. Maine is a kind of a quirky, independent voting kind of state in that sense. So let's dial back a little bit to your mother's life, which is... Uh, one of them, I have to say that when I was reading the, the obituary that you sent me was basically a whirlwind bio of your mother. And I got dizzy just reading it. And also, I was inspired just reading just the first few paragraphs. So she was born Elizabeth McCarthy in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Her father was a geology professor at Chapel Hill in North Carolina, and her mother was um, a librarian there. So, you know, she would talk about there a little bit of the townie and the university kids, and there was a little bit of that going on when she was growing up. Um, So she was born in 1926, so that means she grew up in the Depression. Tell me a little bit about her parents' background, particularly her mother's. You know, um, I love this one story she told me uh, not long before, uh, before she died about her relationship with her mother, because my mother was always reading interesting things. And she remembers that she had a younger sister, my my younger, uh, my Aunt Margaret, and uh, she was not the the studious student as my mother was. And she had read an article, I think, in Life magazine about alternative education. And she, when she was probably around 16 years old, and she showed it to her mother and said, you know, I think Margaret should go to a school like this. And her mother turned to her and said, well, when you have children, you can pick their schools. Which she indeed did. So we'll get to that later. So do you think she was sort of properly dressed down by her mother? Or did she just make a mental note to herself, choose a school like this when I have kids? a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. Um, but, the, but there must have been something about your mother's mother that gave your mother her independent spirit. Yes. You know, they were travelers. She had experiences. They, her, her father was a geologist, so he also did a lot of traveling. And I think they exposed her to the, to the world outside of their own little community. So here we have a little girl. She's taken by um, her parents with her sister, to have an education in Hawaii. So that must have planted in her a love of travel. Yeah, because in, definitely. Because in this obituary, there's a wonderful, it says her signature motto, don't leave home without your passport and bathing suit. <laughs> As we all, we all live by that. That's the one thing her legacy will, you know, her philosophy was anything else you can get there, but those are the two things you really need. <laughs> I couldn't agree more, actually. <laughs> so then she was either 15 or 16 when she set off by train alone to go to college in New York, just north of New York at Sarah Lawrence College. I know. And I always was amazed by that because thinking about myself when I was 16 and she said, you know, it was during the war and they were kind of rushing people through education and just the thought of being 16 years old and getting on a train. I think she stopped in Philadelphia and some family friends met her there. And she went on, I was just like that kind of spirited independence um, 
just I'm so impressed by it. Had she visited Sarah Lawrence before? No. No, she no. just decided she to. She had read about it, and she was really interested in that kind of education. Yeah, it, because Sarah Lawrence back then was one of these pretty avant-garde uh, schools with a, um, a pretty unconventional curriculum back then. She embraced it. She was going into to the city, into New York to see Broadway shows and just... As, as I felt like she was always meant to be a New Yorker, and she made it happen. And she must have thought that, too. Did she have a Southern accent? Well, that was something that always was, confused me as a child, that her, her sister, who stayed in North Carolina, ended up in Western North Carolina, had a very strong accent. As a child, you were very confused, like, how are these two related? <laughs> and I realized, you know, probably as soon as she got on that train and ended up in Sarah Lawrence, and she was keeping quiet exactly how young she was, she was also probably working on losing any kind of accent she had at that point. There's something about your mom, I have just have this sense that this was probably from when she was a little girl, sort of had this feeling that she knew what she wanted to do and where she wanted to be and the kind of uh, life she wanted to have. I agree. I think she read a lot. She was interested in new ideas. She uh, wanted to go out into the world and, and be the person she really wanted to be, not let anyone else define who that was going to be. Your mom wrote a couple of books, and one of them um, was her letters home from Sarah Lawrence College. So there's this wonderful letter that uh, she wrote to her best friend, Bird, and she says that she had just shown a picture of Bird to a few of the other girls. And then she says, so I showed them your picture, and they said you looked like you were very pretty. But they are very polite kids. <laughs> <laughs> she gets out of Sarah Lawrence and she's, I don't know, do you know how, how old she was when she graduated from college? She probably, I don't even know if she did it in three years. I mean, she might have been 19 or 20 at that point. She always said that everything was going so fast during the war and they were just pushing everyone through. Yeah, it, it looks like she was going at warp speed um, because then she went to Yale Law School and she graduated from Yale Law School in 1947, so just a couple of years after after the war ended. That same year, she turned 21, so we have a 21-year-old graduate of Yale Law School. Did she ever talk to you about what it was like being one of the few, I'm assuming very few women at Yale Law School in the 40s? You talk a little bit about it in the sense of, you know, there was this, the, the assumption that, you know, the men were going to go off and be lawyers and the women, well, you know, they were just there. I, I really want to find out how many uh, women there were in her uh, law school class. Just a quick aside here, I really was curious about that. After our interview, I went poking around and I found a group called Yale Law Women. I wrote to the woman who runs it and she wrote back to me immediately and gave me a link to the archives of the Yale Law School Bulletin. And I found her, Elizabeth Dixon McCarthy. She graduated in June of 1947. There were 83 graduates and seven of them were women. And I have to tell you, when I saw her name on that yellowed old piece of paper, I was proud. It was as if my own mother had graduated from Yale Law School in a class of 76 men and 7 women. But it wasn't my own mother. It was Martha's mother. 
Lucky Martha. From what I, from what I can understand, the, one of the things that someone said to her when she interviewed for a job was, "Oh yeah, you'd make a great secretary to a to a male lawyer." Yeah, she told that story, and you know what? It was really interesting. A few years ago, when Mad Men was really popular, I sat down to watch with her because I thought she would like it. It was sort of a little bit of the time when she was went back, got to New York and was looking for a job and she might like the clothes and the styles. And she just turned to me and says, I don't want to watch that. I know what it was like to be that woman and wear those clothes and I don't want to go back. Wow. And that was the one time I ever saw my mom, that sort of negative side of trying to be a professional woman in a certain time. You know, she also told a really interesting story. Right after law school, she she got married. Her husband uh, was a professor in uh, Nebraska. So she had a, sh- it's a short marriage. They got divorced. She ended up back in New York. She thought it'd be interesting to be a police officer, become a police officer. And she started the process, but it turned out she hadn't been a resident of New York City long enough to qualify. And I always thought, you know, what if? What if she had been accepted into the program and made it through? And there she was, you know, a Yale uh, law school graduate. She would probably be, you know, running the New York City Police Department at a certain time. Yeah, that's just the kind of person she was. She did, however, oh, there's this other funny thing that I read that she wanted to work for the Securities and Exchange Commission. But in those days, it was unlikely that they'd hire a woman, even with her qualifications. But for years afterwards, the SEC continued to send her a form asking if she still wanted a job. And she always said yes, just to annoy them. Yeah, it's a little bit of, you know, yes, it does. So how did she meet your dad? She met my dad because my father's sister, my aunt, um, was also at Yale Law School. They had a party in New York, and uh, that's where they met. Nice. So she was coming off one bad marriage. Yes. Do you know whether she was feeling a little bit reluctant to get into another one? She sounds like she was one of these very optimistic people. Yeah. I, you know, I think she just said that we we were too young. It wasn't a right, right mix and sort of just cut, cut our losses and move forward Mm -hmm. kind of attitude about it all. Okay. So she meets her dad. They get married. He was coming off having uh, worked at for the Manhattan Project during the war. And they settle down. They have three girls. Uh, He starts a company. Life is good. They raise you in New York City. And then finally, she can send you to exactly the kind of school she wants to send you to. I I think both of um, my father's parents were educators. Uh, His father was um, a principal, then almost a superintendent, not a total superintendent of New York City Public Schools. And his Mother was a teacher. Both of them had very strong feelings about education. And, you know, I wish I had more of a conversation with my parents about it. But my impression was they weren't thrilled by the way they had been educated and they thought there were better ways to be educated. And uh, they were really interested in the concept of a British school called Summerhill, where the students had more uh, democratic control of their own education. and, And you you opt in, you think about how you want to be educated as opposed to people telling you how to be educated or what classes or what you should study. So it was a small little school in a, in a brownstone. Um, when I walk by it now, I'm always like, it seems so big when I was mm. young. So she was a working mom the whole time you were growing up? 
No, she went when um, started to have children. She became um, stay at home mom and really involved in our education and the school. She was very involved in the school and helped out a lot in the school. And then eventually when the school closed in the 80s, she actually took over um, a, a small foundation from the sell, sale of the brownstone. I'm interested in going back to this copyright case that she worked on that, that involved Gershwin. I've always heard her talking about it. I don't know a lot about it, but it was about the, the, the artist getting royalties from their music. Um, My mom and I, we love to watch Judge Judy. She would always, <laughs> she would always explain, you know, predicting how Judge Judy would rule based on law. So, and, and I realized that, you know, watching Judge Judy, that actually teaches many Americans the basic of good legal practice of, you know, writing things down, getting things signed, having evidence. Oh yeah, that good. Yeah, Judge Judy. I never thought of that. That's true. Uh, the first thing you said to me was, yeah, my mom is my hero. And what made you say that? Well, I think a lot of what we talked about just being a 16-year-old and being willing to get on a train by herself, go follow her her dream, her interests, and not let anyone define who she will be and, and making her own path and not letting people say things that will discourage you. And, and, you know, as you get older and you see your parents more than just the, your, your mom and your dad, you realize, wow, you know, that was amazing. Right. And even at the end of her life, I feel like I remember we were doing something and she said, well, my mantra is I'm going to accept and adapt as I age. That to me is amazing. It was always, always that kind of being practical and thoughtful about everything all the time. Do you think she had a parenting philosophy? You know, I definitely think she encouraged us to go out, to go to have your children go out in the world and not protect them. I think one of her philosophies, go out and see the world and we'll come and visit. I think she wanted you to understand and make your own decisions and realize the ramifications of those decisions. Mm-hmm. But she didn't... And everything is a learning experience, I guess, in that sense. Mm -hmm. What are the ways that your mother helped shape who you are? You know, I, I feel like she always respected my ideas and would have conversations. She never shot down anything in a way that would stop me from doing something, but she would, you know, ask the questions and, and talk me through things in a way that... I'm very grateful for her as a parent. Um, I think I was in sixth grade and I rode the subway by myself because I had to go up to these orthodontics appointments. My mom was you know, tired of always taking me up on the subway. And we had done a few test runs together where she went with me, but she didn't guide me. And then I remember doing it and coming home and she presented me with a token on a string when the token used to have like the Y through it and she gave it to me as her you know, congratulations, you've done it. And I think I'm so grateful those kinds of experiences. You know, we can't pick our parents, but it, it sounds like she would have been a pretty great one to pick. Would you have picked her if you, if you could have chosen? Is that the parent you'd have chosen to have? 
You know, I think there was this great moment at the end of college and my parents, maybe in high school or even you're a little bit sometimes embarrassed that you you have parents and your friends to your parents. But by the time I was in college and I was learning, meeting lots of different people from different places. And then I realized I'm really lucky. I had some really cool, interesting parents. Ever since then, I've really appreciated, I think, of of really being lucky with the parents I had. And then tell me about Frances Perkins. Is that who it is? Frances Perkins. During the summer when my mom was young, um, they would go to Maine because my grandfather was off doing field research. And my mom would explain, you know, in the summer in the South, there was no air conditioning. So you, if you had ability, you would go up to New England and her mother would drive her by an old farmhouse and say, that's where Francis Perkins' family lived. And Francis Perkins was um, FDR's um, Secretary of Labor and the first female cabinet member. And she um, created Social Security. Really? You mean she built it? Yeah, that was her idea. And and it started during that time. Mm -hmm. It just so happened that Francis Perkins' grandson was still living in this farmhouse and my mom started a relation uh, friendship with him and helped him start the foundation which eventually now is is a um, Francis Perkins Center and they've now purchased the farmhouse to make it a museum and foundation to encourage the work of Francis Perkins that's a wonderful thing to do if you were to point to the the best advice she ever gave you Oh, that's a good one. I'm trying to think of all. It's not quite the right the the answer, but we were we. My mom having celebrating big big birthdays was always very important, and we had gone um, to a resort um, down the Caribbean because my mom also loved to snorkel and was really into tropical fish, seeing the fish and the snorkeling. And we were just celebrating my mom at the dinner, and actually with my younger sister Emily, who said, "You know, whenever I'm in a situation." And I and I trying to figure it all out. I always think, what would Betta do? It's not quite advice, but I do feel that we we'd like to channel our mom's practical and intelligent reaction to difficult situations. And how, at the end of her life, did she speak about where we are as a country? I think she really wanted to see how it was all going to turn out. We, you know, she was a person that was constantly watching MSNBC and CNN and reading the New York Times. Um, she was concerned about the planet. She really was concerned about climate change and how the world was going to be for her grandchildren. In some ways, I'm, I'm relieved that she's not still alive to see sort of the mess that our country is in right now. I think she would be discouraged, but I think also optimistic that she would point out that there are still functioning checks and balances in our government. I, I think about this a lot, but she loved the Alison Bechtel test. Are you familiar with that? Mm-hmm. That's um, Alison Bechtel was is a, a lesbian. She did comics, but it's um, a test to see whether or not a movie, a work of fiction or a movie 
must have two women who talk to each other about something other than a man. A woman must, and a woman must be named. And you'd be surprised. There's actually a website that rates movies based on this test. So if you were to describe your mother in one word, what would that word be? Um, I would say strong. She had strong opinions. She had strong ideas. <laughs> and she was like... All my friends were always shocked growing up when I was in New York that your mom's not a New Yorker. Really? <laughs> you know, she, she just came across as that opinionated person who knew what she knew and had, it wasn't, wouldn't I hesitate to tell you about it. I think she was always frustrated with me because I was a little too timid. I was afraid to break the rules and or that the rules or do, do you understand that sometimes the rules aren't really Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Know that. I bet she did. She wanted to <laughs> slap you and say, "Whose daughter are you?" <laughs> I know. And she always reminded me of a situation. I must have been, you know, pretty young, and we were driving up to Westchester. It was a time when you used to throw coins into the toll basket, and she missed it. And she drove through, and the alarm went off, and she just kept on driving. And I was, I was you know, frantic. And I was hiding in the bottom of the car. I, I was afraid that I would, we were going to be taken away to toll prison or something. And she was so mad at me. What do you know? <laughs> and nothing happened. <laughs> well, of course, nothing happened. <laughs> I read that your mother liked to drive across the country with her dog sister. <laughs> Is that right? That's true. She, um, when she was about, I guess about Seventy, she announced that she wanted to get a dog and she wanted to get a poodle because poodles are very smart. Mm-hmm. And we were all sort of surprised because we were not a dog family. Mm. And she, like everything she did, she read about it, she researched it, found a breeder and found sister who she named, actually named after her mother in a very Southern way. Her mother was the youngest of many and all brothers and they, everyone called her sister. A tribute to her mother. Oh, that's and sweet. My mom really loved to drive, and she um, she bought herself a convertible, and she would <laughs> put taught early age to put sister in. She had a special seat dog seatbelt for sister, and the two of them would take off. Oh, so um, for a while she had an adventures together. Was sister a standard poodle? She was a standard poodle. She was on the small side mm-hmm. because at one point she was. Um, she would go down to the winter to us a, a condo in Florida with a 35 pound requirement for dogs and sister always squeaked right in. Amazing. <laughs> and, you know, I think at one point my mom told me, I need something, the reason to get up in the morning and do something. And that was part of having a dog. Mm-hmm. And it really was a wonderful thing because in that sort of, a, of her mantra of accepting and adapting as you get older, you know, you said, you know, hardest thing about getting old is that your friends die. Mm. And you have to get out there and make new friends. Mm-hmm. And that's that's another sort of advice that I, I think a lot about, that you know, both by having the dog and she would go to the dog run in, in, uh, near us in the Westville and she met people that way. And when she um, moved into, wintered in a condo in Florida, she met some really wonderful, interesting people on the beach. And so you, you continue developing your friendships and 
having interesting conversations with people of all different generations is really important. Mm -hmm. And she had a lifelong friendship with somebody named Bird who she, they wrote a book together or they, yeah, that's that same, Mm -hmm. um, high school, elementary and high school friend from North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And they reconnected Mm -hmm. at her 50th high school reunion. Uh, Yeah, the driving thing. How old was she when she um, stopped driving? Yeah, it must have been a year or two after she was turned 85. Mm -hmm. I I wasn't so involved in it as much as one of my other sisters who asked her to please and and it was one of those things where I think she had told a cousin that she realized she had left the car on when she'd gone into the supermarket. Both my parents were, I think, very practical, that kind of scientific way. Mm-hmm. Um, what legacy would you say that your mom left for not just you and your respective spouses and her grandchildren, but for the world? I think she was proud of her work to promote Frances Perkins. Um, and, to, and that was very important to her at the end of her life. I, I think her, her spirit to go out there and travel and, and meet people and have interesting conversations and learn about ways other people live. Do you ever feel like it's hard to live up to her example? Oh, you know, I... I do. I think about that a lot, you know, and as you get older, you, you reflect even more on your parents thinking, wow, you know, it was a really big deal to be at Yale when she was at Yale, Mm -hmm. Yale Law School. And uh, I could barely survive. I took one education law class with a professor who taught like a law school and I had a stomach ache before each class. I was thinking, wow, you know, she, she, she did it. Well, this has been really wonderful. Thank you so much uh, for talking to me um, about your mom. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity. There's a little part of me in my my mind going, oh, I hope I'm doing my mom pure justice. And that's it this week for our Mothers Ourselves. I've been meaning for a while now to tell you about the word cloud that I've been creating. For the past 10 years or so, I've been collecting everybody's one word to describe their mother. The list has grown very long. And for a better visual idea of how we collectively feel about our mothers, I've created a word cloud. You can see it on ourmothersourselves.com. Just click on the Mother Word Cloud page. It's pretty incredible. So I'd like to invite you to come up with one word to describe your mother and I'll add it to the word cloud. Our theme song was composed and performed by Andrea Perry. Paula Mangin is our artist-in-residence. Our intern is Rosie Manick, and Alice Hudson is the show's producer. A special thanks this week to Margaret Howes, chair of the Yale Law Women Board, for pointing me in the right direction. Our Mothers Ourselves is a production of Odredeck Studios. I'm Katie Hafner, and I'm your host. Have a great week, everyone. And as Betta would say, vote.